All right, everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 135 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from, from the Baltics, from Eastern Europe, joined here by my co-host Alec Harris, who's always from Halo Privacy in Eastern US. Alec, how are you doing this morning? What's up, fellas? Been a minute. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah, good to have you back on. Uh, and today we are going to introduce our special guests uh, from from Estonia, uh, the land of startups, tech prowess. Happy to have him back on. We have Mick Mall, uh, consultant from uh, former consultant, I guess I should say, from uh, Comistar Estonia. Always has been big in the crypto uh, crypto world. We talked about Estonian startups and and crypto projects before on the show. And we also have Arthur Shabak. He is a uh, co-founder and CEO of Paxful, one of the largest uh, P2P Bitcoin exchanges since 2015. I'm sure many in the space are familiar with Paxful. And both are core contributors to a new project called Clip Finance, which we'll talk about more today. So happy to have them on. Mick, Arthur, welcome to the show. Hey, Matthew. Great to be back. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. So um, as we were talking pre-show, I think it'd just be great Maybe Artur, to start with you, uh, I think a very well-known company in the space, certainly have done just a lot for Bitcoin adoption all around the world. Very interesting model. And I'm wondering if maybe you could just give us an update on Paxful and how things are going there and uh, maybe a little bit of, of your story with that. Sure, yeah. Well, as you said, we started Paxful back in 2015 and the times were completely different. There was no Ethereum, there were no others, hundreds of different coins, the people's uh, the way people used, uh, the way people saw crypto was was different. Well, there was the speculation part, but in general, people didn't realize the the, the power of crypto. Uh, who doesn't know Paxful is a P2P marketplace where we bring people together who want to exchange value. Um, that means you have Bitcoin and you want to sell it, you can sell it for PayPal, or you can sell it for um, Western Union for bank transfer, for wire, uh, and then there's somebody other other person on the other end who is willing to buy your Bitcoin for that payment method, and we provide a platform um, where we pr provide escrow service and the listing service. So super similar to Airbnb or Craigslist. That's core at its service, and because it's this open-ended marketplace where people can exchange value and using Bitcoin as a transfer layer. Uh, we've seen like amazing things people do. Um, yeah, first obvious thing is they buy Bitcoin to, to send it to exchanges to speculate and uh, trade on that and to buy other coins. Uh, other big thing is uh, using that for the day-to-day -day payments. And we have split this use cases into Remittance when you want to send money abroad. Obviously, we all know that the story like, oh, Bitcoin will kill Western Union, which is true. Um, and when we're going to make Bitcoin really easy to use, that's going to happen. But for now, people already figured out. Good example is from South Africa, sending money back to Kenya. Traditional way is like standing in line, paying fees of about 10, 20. Uh, percent with Bitcoin, you buy it on Paxful with FNB Bank, that's like a local version of PayPal. And then you, that Bitcoin you sell um, in Kenya for M-Pesa payment method, that's their local version of 
PayPal. So meaning you don't use it like international transfer, like Swift network. And you will you would pay only 5% fee because of the Bitcoin premium in Kenya. But it literally takes you like a few minutes. So and once you once you realize that you can do this trade routes by utilizing the marketplace, uh, the the commerce, the the money movements you can do is like limitless. So that's what it is. We've spoken with Sergey from BitRefill, and uh, I'm I'm always interested in exchanges that find creative ways to trade bitcoins. And obviously, as you've just alluded to, that's uh, that's uh, I think a lot of what you guys have been doing uh, over the years. Can you tell us in like developing markets, you know, Africa, Latin America, you know, parts of Asia, are you aware how competitive you have been just as an entity in Bitcoin, you know, helping Bitcoin adoption? Like, are you kind of like one of the main go-to places in a lot of emerging markets due to all the different methods that you offer to, to buy Bitcoin? Yeah, so because we like, we offer, offer over 300 payment methods to buy Bitcoin and most of them are in developing world. So uh, we, are, we are big in Africa, LATAM, uh, Southeast Asia, and our volumes are not going down even now in, in the bear market. And the reason is, is because people don't use us only for speculation purposes, like, you know, exchanges volumes go down, especially during the bear markets. But here, because people need to serve people doing some commerce day to day, like their commerce hasn't stopped. So they continue to use us. But again, the biggest obstacle is education. Like um, people are used to, people have habits and they're used to, uh, for whatever, whatever way they do their day to day payments, right? The day to day financial life. And if you show them that, they get defensive and so on. So it takes time. But once they get, um, once you show them the true value, they would start thinking. And, and that is the reason because it, it happens in these regions. Uh, the reason is that the payment networks between the countries don't work there. Uh, I mean, they don't talk with each other. So. Uh, and yeah, like I told you this example, like from South Africa to Kenya, um, there's like commerce between Brazil and South Africa, there's like in Indonesia and so on. It's like, it's crazy in a good way, like what people are able to do with the power of P2P. One of the things I think is cool is how many different payment gateways you guys have. Um, and how do you, are, are you basing those on, like as you integrate new pay? Uh, new gateway, is that based on demand or are you identifying that there are certain uh, currency flows between countries or regions and so you're trying to accommodate those or is it just user feedback? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. Just We, we just check uh, what, what people use and what kind of payment methods people use in the country, right? In, like in, in Indonesia, in Philippines, like what's, what, what is their, like their, their, a version of PayPal there, or how is the banking network working there? Like, are people using mostly banks there or mostly uh, wallets like PayPal? So, for example, in Kenya, like most African countries, they don't use banks, right? They, uh, it's like the, the, the usage of banks is only by 50% of people, I mean, households, but like M-Pesa wallet is by 96% of uh, households. Only South African and Nigerian and Nigeria these are the only countries where the banking, the people use banks, but all other countries, they don't use banks. So they use the local wallet. So basically, yeah, what's the most popular, what people have in their, 
in their phones installed, we just add them. Uh, and that's the reason, right? We know what, so because people using them, obviously then we will get, um, then we will get uh, traction. Like people will start Googling, like buy Bitcoin with M-Pesa and we will be first um, in, the, in the list. Was it a development challenge to make so many different payment uh, gateways talk to each other, right? Because you're, there's a lot of disparate integration, it seems like. Yeah, so uh, that's, that's actually one misconception is that we don't integrate with this payment methods like uh, as, a, as a Paxful. We just list it as a payment, net, as a, as a payment method where uh, you can, like for case, so when we have this PayPal payment method, we don't take PayPal's, we don't take customers' PayPal money into our PayPal account. So we don't have a corporate PayPal account. We just provide the payment method name and then people talk with each other in the chat when they do the trade. And then they share, one guy shares uh, his PayPal address to another guy and this other guy sends to the guy's PayPal address money. So. Uh, and that's the, the, now the core question is like, well, what if somebody is, is lying or how do we do the dispute? How do we do the moderation? So that's just like eBay, like same thing, like it's feedback based, it's, uh, it's a proof based. If you know, somebody's lying, they have to provide the pr proof of payment, all that stuff. So literally we, we cannot like, like thousands of payment methods, obviously there's a c compliance checks, all that stuff, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't. It's not a complex thing technically to add the new payment method. So where do you see the most volume uh, by payment? Can you see which payment modalities are the most chosen? Yeah. So again, it's, it's by country, right? Um, it's a, it's a bank transfers. It's uh, it's a local wallets. Like I was saying, it's in Kenya. It's in uh, bank transfers in Nigeria, Kenya, in Pesa, like in Europe, it's SEPA. Um, I think in Brazil, it's also bank transfers. So we actually have this data public. It's on on uh, CoinDance, but we don't have there by payment methods, but by uh, just volume, yeah. Have there been any surprises in terms of um, places where you had more adoption than you would have expected? Oh, all the time, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just like we list, you know, uh, their most popular um, wallets, like their... Uh, in the country, whatever they use for day-to-day -day finance, and then just people just come, like they just appear organically. So no specific examples to bring, but it, it's just, uh, well, I would say honestly, like Africa is the thing is uh, where we have the most volume. It's like they, they, they are like super um, creative, I would say, uh, figure out that, hey, they can buy quickly Bitcoin, they can do something with that. And I think I saw on your site, it said that after you guys implemented uh, KYC, you saw an uptick in volume. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, to, 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 to be honest, um, um, you know, we, we, we understand the aspect of privacy and all that stuff, how it's important, like, like for ourselves. Uh, but, but, but Paxful as a platform and, and our customer base are totally fine doing KYC because we have this people from again, from Africa and so on, where whatever service they're using, financial service, they, they are KYCing, right? When they, when they buy a mobile SIM card, they are giving out passports uh, to, to KYC or whatever they do, they do KYC. So here, 
it's completely fine for them. And again, this, this, these people are using Bitcoin for day-to-day -day life. And again, we understand people who don't want a KYC, you know, then, then there are other exchanges you can use. But for us, it's like, it's obviously the compliance part is there as well, but uh, because it's an open-ended marketplace, KYC helps from fraud and duplicate accounts, this kind of things. So I want to get to your to your new project uh, soon, but just maybe to to wrap up on Paxful. I mean, is there any? And as sort of a quick overview over many many years, but is there any interesting other sort of learnings that you've had running the marketplace? Is there anything new that you got on the horizon? Just anything else that's kind of interesting? Uh, yeah. So um, I mean, yeah, the, the the product wise, right? We can like in the, every area, I le I learned something new, obviously. Uh, for like a product side is uh, I learned what people want. They, uh, in terms of how they want to interact with the product, they want something super simple. Um, they, they, they really don't want to think and they don't understand all this technical terms. Like surprisingly, if something is like super obvious for us, for, for people, it's not obvious. And so, and, and Paxful evolved all, during all this time to become like the, the easiest P2P marketplace to use. And we were calling it so like, we're really, really great acquisition mach machine in the crypto space. Uh, it means like first, first Bitcoin, uh, people, where people buy their first Bitcoin is or was Paxful. And, you know, from there, because we don't have exchange or other stuff, they just send it further. But we're a really good acquisition machine. It's because we understand the user base and the the type of people who are getting into crypto and how we can basically convert them make their bitcoin purchase easy and you know and that would bring to the new project why why we started it why don't we bring it forward then to to clip finance what was the genesis for clip finance what's the idea almost a year ago um well no I, let's, let's let's go back uh look i i, I was a bitcoin maxi to like 2020 uh, DeFi summer that was 2020 like spring even and i started hearing that people are making on their ethereum some like 20 percent gains every year by not selling ethereum not exposing to like ethereum volatility and not just holding that but yeah and then i started to research and then i and then i um, saw this uh, DeFi thing and like long story short i started using this I started like making these gains as well, but then all this uh, was built for we call degens. Like it's called not what you think. It's called also decentralized generation. But basically, it was built for um, for the same De tech. Yes, for the same tech people, not for like simple people. And uh, the learning curve is pretty steep. And still, like, I have friends who are into crypto, but don't understand DeFi uh, or don't have time to learn DeFi research. I understand them. It requires an immense amount of time. And so because of well, my experience uh, building Paxful, like, I understand. I hope so what people uh, want to see, how they want to interact with DeFi. So and that's how Clip Finance or Clip Finance, as you saying, was born. Make a super simple uh, UI without a less huge complex dashboard where people can simply like deposit their stable coins and earn yield. And the analogy 
of this super simple interface that, that, that really works in DeFi, I would say is one is obviously Uniswap and then is Lido. So Lido is a, a liquid staking Ethereum. It's already like, you don't know already what means liquid staking, I assume, like some people wouldn't know. So, but anyway, there's just one field, how much ETH you want to deposit, how much you're going to earn on that ETH is information and deposit. That's it. Like all this for the, like for the common people, you just deposited ETH and now it's taking, you're earning your four or 5% yield. And for like more advanced users, they would figure out that, Hey, you got a, you got a, like a tokenized version of your staked ETH that you can use in other DeFi apps as a, you know, as a collateral or whatever, basically that's why it's called liquid. So you, you can, you, you can use that, uh, tokenized staked ETH that is also earning yield at the same time. And you can just use it like, because the, the point of DeFi is a uh, composability as well. So that's, I, I would bring it up later as well. First of all, I used to always say finance as well. You know, growing up in middle America, that was the way that I learned it. But then coming to Europe, there's so many different pronunciations of so many different words. I decided to always make an effort to say it in a localized way. And since Wall Street people always say finance, that's where I, I morphed from saying finance to finance. You know, and like it's like, don't say Sicily, but say Sicilia. So. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I, lived, I, I lived in New York for like four or five years. And well, I, I haven't paid attention to that, I would say so. <laughs> but that's interesting, finance. It's the problem, the structural problem of Europe, right? Is everybody has so many different ways to say their localized word. And uh, so I, I just make an effort to say it, say it in, the, in the local way, in English. Anyway, that's the first thing. Second thing regarding the platform, I'm like Nassim Taleb style, like show me your portfolio more than uh, say a lot of other stuff. And I, I'm definitely pretty much all Bitcoin. And, you know, we just had the ETH merge and everything. And obviously there's a lot of, uh, lot of debate on proof of work versus proof of stake these days. It's so funny. I mean, I was just listening to uh, the BBC on the radio here. It's made news on the BBC. It's just wild. It's wild that they're talking about this stuff. But in any event, for me, I'm always a caveat mTOR guy. Do what you need to do to uh, increase your stack. For me, it's always Bitcoin. You know, caveat mTOR, just be careful. You know, obviously, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Everybody needs to be careful and be cautious about uh, degen yield farming, as you say. So, yeah, is there, you know, maybe we'll just get into it a little bit more. What, is, what are some of the principles that you're trying to offer for users to, uh, to earn, earn yield and and uh, stack whatever I guess they can stack. Based, I guess it's all ETH based at the moment. Is that right? Um, actually, no. It's uh, Binance Smart Chain, Polygon, um, Arbitrum, Optimism, and ETH as well. So we're gonna be like multi-chain uh, yield optimizer. I'll just keep coming at it. I guess with a little bit of a skeptical eye. I mean, obviously, when markets go down, people are overlevered and uh, things get liquidated. We saw what happened with uh, with Terra. Obviously, the big one. You know, how's sort of the, the ethos look in the, in the yield farming, <laughs> the yield farming world these days? Are people uh, getting more skeptical? Is there still a lot of dumb money in there? Are they getting any smarter? From my view, it's still, there's no free lunch. So caveat emptor, you got to be careful. So I, I guess there's a, a question of, well, like the underlying question might be whether the, you know, DeFi or yield farming should be permission, right? Should, uh, should you uh, filter who can actually do it? 
um, or it should be permissionless so people can make those dumb mistakes and uh, lose a lot of money and things like that. So that's that's a whole wider conversation to have. Uh, but I guess I guess um, a lot of money has left the market when when it comes to retail. But uh, the DGENs and, and you know these people they they they, they of course have stayed because there are still so many opportunities uh, to earn yield and also um, a lot of a lot of DGENs today. I'm not sure how much you follow crypto Twitter and I guess we follow different different accounts. The people there. Are, are incredibly smart. They they know finance. They have uh, the, the, their background is in finance. They know their financial products. Uh, the products are getting a lot more complicated every day. It seems. Um, so um, I, I would say that the uh, there's still still a lot of lot of money in the markets, um, and people are looking for different opportunities. Yes, there's uh, kind of more more thinking <laughs> more thinking than before. Uh, less aping in, in into you know protocols promising 20-30% on stable coins, uh, though that that still happens as well. But uh, I, I would say that um, you know it's it's kind of a market where you, you have these people who uh, who already know what they're risking, right? And and they uh, they're not going anywhere uh, because you know as long as there are new new opportunities coming up, they just want to uh, take advantage of it. It's it's kind of like a sport, I guess. Uh, but but it's also there's a lot more and more kind of you know real yield. So there's that winning narrative at the moment where uh, those yield uh, yield farming rewards aren't really boosted anymore with the native token of any any protocol. But it's actually you know uh, protocols sharing their trading fees, for example, like GMX uh, or GNS, and you know there are tons of different protocols. But you know they're actually making real money and they're, they're sharing this money with uh, token holders and that. That kind of sustainable yield is actually what is needed in order for this industry to, to go somewhere, um, and, uh, and and we're seeing more and more of that. So I, I think there's uh, you know things to be optimistic about, um, and I also think there are more better builders in the space compared to you know uh, two years ago, three years or four years ago, uh, because it's been you know like the game of uh, you know opportunists because the barrier. Is so low, you can fork a code, you can uh, you can start a protocol, and all of a sudden you're you know 17 years old. Two developers are managing like you know 200 million dollars, for example. So so these things happen, uh, I think, less and less now. Uh, and, uh, and and yeah, people are kind of looking risk managed yield farming more than than before. You know, my efforts to follow the lead up to, and you know, obviously the very recent merge um, left me a little confused about what the new kind of tokenomics were. Um, but, I, you know, it's new, right? And so I think there's a little bit of watch and see. Um, but y you guys are offering yield. And I would assume your business model is, is it some arbitrage on that? Yeah, what we do is uh, we, we, we uh, only work with stable coins at the moment. Uh, so uh, what we do is um, we look for opportunities in DeFi, you know, lending platforms, trading platforms, where you can pro provide liquidity and earn fees. And uh, um, we analyze different yield farming strategies. We, we do a risk scoring for each strategy. So it go goes through the auditing process, which is, I think, pretty thorough, but, you know, you, you, you can never be too sure, of course. We assign a risk to each strategy, you know, and according to that risk, uh, risk score, uh, we will assign a weight in the overall pool 
And what we do is if user comes in and uh, deposits, uh, you know, let's say 100 uh, die, right? Then uh, the strategy router, which is uh, the smart contract on the backend, which we have built, routes user funds to multiple different uh, yield farming strategies. So uh, due to underlying protocols, um, and, um, and, and that, that's what we do. We aggregate yield, right? We don't, uh, we're not the lending platform ourselves. We don't have trading, uh, operations, uh, we just, uh, you know, find, uh, monitor, uh, rebalance, reallocate, uh, the, the, the deposits and auto compound the, the rewards as well. So we, what we do is we take away the, the manual work of uh, yield farming. So usually what you have to do is you have to find, you know, um, let's say a yield farm that you want to use, um, then you have to deposit, uh, then you have to uh, monitor, then if the, uh, for example, API changes, and they often do, uh, it can be one uh, like 10% one week and a week later you go and then the, the API for the pool is 3%, then you have to find a new opportunity, you have to withdraw the funds and the deposit into a new pool, all the time paying the transaction fees, so, um, and, and this is kind of what we automate. We, we uh, take away the pain. So what, what we want to give as an experience is rather like, you know, like, oh, I, I guess, uh, a fund, on-chain fund. So you come in, you, you choose the amount to, to deposit, to deposit the funds and uh, on the backend smart contracts to do the rest. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so as a user, can I calibrate my appetite for risk and say, okay, I'd like to all be entirely in the riskier pools, or is that also done on, on the user's behalf? Yeah, it's done on the user's behalf. You can't do it at the beginning, at least, you know, with the version uh, V1. Uh, we do have some plans, you know, along the way where we might change something. But as Arthur said before, what we really want to do is create super simple experience. So the more you have to think and, uh, you know, understand the risks and why something is more risky than the other, uh, we see it like, you know, another layer of complexity at the moment. So, and, and what we do or how we approach this at the, at the moment is, uh, we rather choose like safer strategies, the, the core idea or not the core idea, sorry, but the number one priority is not to lose user funds. So we don't ape into new yield farms, new protocols. Um, we, we really want to do uh, the risk management part correctly and not just say that we do risk management, but actually do it unlike, uh, Celsius, for example. So, uh, and, and these, <laughs> these are kind of the, you know, the, the principles we, we try to, uh, try to, uh, really follow. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, for, for, uh, Bitcoin stuff, we, we have thought about, we have thought about that people can come in and you know deposit stable coins and earn earn uh, and the yield is paid out in uh, you know wrapped Bitcoin for example. So we'll see what, if we will get there. You know these ty types of things are a bit divisive, but uh, th there are ideas ideas like that with us as well. Yeah, interesting. And so I want to ask a little more about the uh, the risk. So. Do you guys have like a, a human risk committee or is the risk assessed mathematically or, or how are you making those determinations? Yeah, yeah, we do have, uh, well, it, it will, there will be, um, uh, because we, we kind of, when we push for more decentralized setup, then there will be um, like a strategy council that will assess the risks uh, as well. And, and then there will be a vote which 
strategies will, de- will be deployed. But at the moment, uh, we go through the risk analysis manually because we are all also looking, you know, what are the what are the teams behind protocols? What's what's the history with those uh, with the team? Have there been any exploits in the past? How did the team react to that exploit? And it's really hard to write those things into a code, right? But we do have like hard rules, like you know, we 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 won't uh, we don't want, for example, that clips funds or the funds that go through clip uh, make up more than let's say fifteen percent of the pool where we are depositing into because uh, you know if we need to withdraw we don't want to have you know problems with liquidity for example so uh, there are hard rules as well that can be uh, you know uh, written into a code uh, especially for monitoring purposes when we automatically need to withdraw um, but uh, currently the risk analysis uh, is done by uh, is done by humans yeah really interesting uh, are you guys involved in that well, considering that I, I I wrote the risk scoring procedure, which is public document, then I, you can say that. So you guys have a token that is not yet uh, pending. Is that true? We don't have a token yet. Yeah. But that's in your roadmap. It is in our roadmap. Um, it is in our roadmap, and uh, there can be there's a debate whether we actually need a token or not. I get like you know. To be fair, most protocols don't need a token. Um, but if you really want to compete in this market, well, for one, you have a cold start problem, right? How do you incentivize users to use the protocol, especially if there are 10 other protocols that are providing some tokens, you know, for people where they can actually have a stake in their protocol and and, uh, and uh, be kind of be part of the, uh, or just have some, you know, ownership in, in the protocol or, or have, have a part of the proceeds and, and so on. So. Um, there will be a token. Um, we could exist without the token, right? Because we are farming with stable coins and uh, we earn fees in stable coins, and um, and and that that's pretty much what what it is, right? Um, but the token does have a, a you know a purpose, and all, all token holders uh, will will be receiving uh, uh, the uh, or the, we we will share the revenues that we are earning with the uh, token holders. And um, and and also to tackle the gold star problem to incentivize users to uh, use the protocol, we will have some uh, in- incentives based on tokens. So uh, people that come in and use the protocol, they uh, they will have uh, you know chance to earn earn, earn clip tokens. Yeah, awesome. And, and I noticed on your website it said that you were aware of some uh, token scams claiming to be clip tokens already. Yeah, that's some old stuff. I don't know. It, it, in the winter time, all of a sudden, some website. I don't remember what it was like. I, I, ICO drops, or you know those. ICO. It was on like Solana. This. Yeah, it was on Solana. Basically, somebody messages, "Oh, guys, you have a token." Like and like, no, we don't. Somebody yeah, listed that on Solana. Yeah, but it was pretty funny because you know we um, nothing was done on on uh, like on the marketing front. Anything. All of a sudden, people start coming to Telegram, and yeah, you, you have a token. You have a token. It's, it's, it's funny because it's so simple how the human mind works like they see, you know, okay, I can gain something and, and then, then they uh, jumped in without knowing even what clip is. So, uh, yeah, but that's, that's true. There was some, some scam. Do you guys have any thoughts on the future of stable coins versus CBDCs? And I'll just give you a little bit of context. I've, I, uh, I, I, I always joke when I talk about this on podcasts, I don't write this stuff down as much as I should, but 
I've been pretty bearish on CBDCs for like four years, even when stable coins were kind of just coming of age, Tether uh, in particular, about four, four and a half years ago. You know, it's the easiest thing to regulate. It is working. Uh, it's funny too that a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, they still, for some reason, like some of them even say they even liked stable coins or don't mind stable coins. <laughs> they're certainly interesting. They're kind of like Euro dollars. You know, they're, they're all in dollar denominated uh, stables mostly because you can't really have a viable stable coin when your assets are paying negative interest, which is like <laughs> until recently for the Euro, you know, the Swissy, the Yen, you can't really do a stable coin in anything other than the dollar. So I think that there, there is showing to be a very good use case for stable coins. Uh, regulation is famously coming in the US. But then we have CBDCs as well. So uh, do you guys have any opinion on, on CBDCs or? Uh... I'll just explain what a CBDC. Um, I assume some people don't know. And I was in, I was in Nigeria and there's already eNaira. Uh, their yeah, CBDC. That's true. So, and what is CBDC? I tried to understand. I met their like their lo local fintech guys, like Yellow Card and this guy guys from there. Uh, they explained eNaira is uh, uh, bank agnostic. Um, yeah, that's it. And what does it mean that the balance is kept in central bank, your balance, and any bank can plug into that. So, so imagine that now the, the, the things have flipped because before the central banks were like giving money to commercial banks and then the balances were kept at commercial banks. So, but with, this, with the CBDCs, the, the balances are kept with, uh, with the central bank and uh, the commercial banks are just uh, like you're using their API to, to build a front end for that. So, and the consequences it, 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 it may have, uh, you know, can just imagine when uh, all the compliance that is commercial bank doing, the central bank will be doing. Like uh, you know, all this, all the stories you have heard that uh, they will decide like who's gonna like will you be able to to pay that money or take away some money from you and all these things. So that's what CBDC is, and obviously uh, that's an interesting philosophy right where we're gonna and where we're gonna move like would we will, will we really gonna go there well well I, i'm more like a bitcoin max i i hope for the hyper bitcoinization to happen as you know as soon as possible but you know it's still gonna take some time but it will i think cbdc's are inevitable um i think they will come um and i i think it's a very sad future for, for, you know, for many or for most or for all, maybe, as Arthur said, you know, it's, uh, you know, if maybe, maybe, I don't know if, if they, if they will have, you know, that much control over what you do and let's say there are, I don't know how, how much meat you can eat, for example, or, or how much, I don't know, um, alcohol you can buy. In a, in, a, in a given period or, you know, you, they, they pretty much it gives a possibility to track and control and limit whatever they want uh, to force compliance and things like that. So super skeptical about, about that. I, I think they will come, but uh, not happy about it. I do think that there will be, a, like, I, I don't know, it's, it seems like, it seems like um, when you think about it logically, then for, for, for central banks, they would prefer if stable coins wouldn't exist. So why, why would you want to have something competing 
uh, in the market, and uh, we'll see how how that will fall, or maybe those stable coins will be you know uh, turned into CBDCs by proxy or something like that. We'll see, uh, but um, I, I guess I guess they they could affect our business down the line as well um, in in many ways. But uh, I, I do hope we have we have time, and uh, as Arthur said, maybe maybe we could have hyper Bitcoinization before. Yeah, I have a kind of philosophical question on this. Do you guys think that central banks would be moving as quickly as they are now towards CBDCs if they hadn't seen the success of digital currency of you know Bitcoin or, or even uh, like Tether or some of the stable coins? Did we give them this idea? Basically? Yeah, it really does feel like uh, it's, it's kind of being forced at the moment, uh, you know, as rapidly as possible. Um, I don't know, but I do. I do think that um, yes, that I do think that they're, the reason why they're moving so fast is because if you know the the genie is out of the bottle and you can't you can't control it later anymore, so so you really have to have to act fast. Yeah, I actually gave a talk on this a little bit. That uh, I mean, it wasn't only on CBDCs, but I talked about it at uh, Baltic Honey Badger a couple weeks ago in Riga. I think that there are a few countries that are going to try it. Obviously, some some developing countries where their currencies are just crap anyway. They got to try something. Uh, maybe in the Scandics, where they're rich enough to uh, really, they're already trying to digitize the economy, which is primarily Norway and uh, and Sweden. You know, maybe it could happen in Estonia, but obviously Estonia's on the euro and. It's not the same case for the rest of, of Europe. And then maybe in China where there's obviously there's just less incentive uh, for profitability in banks and uh, a communist state can just kind of force it on. But Bank of Japan gave a, gave a uh, report, which was uh, unfortunately not quoted in the media since we get like 50 articles a day on CBDC, but there was a report on CBDCs uh, from the Bank of Japan two months ago and they said uh, basically we see relatively few use cases for CBDCs in the world and we're not going to implement a CBDC anytime soon. And Japan is like, you know, top four currency in the world, top three economy in the world. And uh, there's, I think, various reasons for that. But uh, yeah, I personally think that they're going to have a rough go to get it, to get it uh, worldwide adoption. I think stable coins work just fine. You know, they're more nimble. You have a company that's just issuing tokens and taking the money and investing it. And that's, that's how banking works, right? And I just do not see a central bank managing these things. And anyway, if they do, they're probably going to have to drain deposits from the banking sector to go into their CBDC. And so that will make banks less profitable, which is already written in all the papers anyway. So physical cash is still flying. And as you probably know, with uh, I'm sure that you somehow, uh, even with Paxful, have dealt with, you know, I know you deal with gift cards, but you know, physical cash is uh, growing at 10% a year globally. Uh, Bank of India tried to redo its notes um, and get digitized the economy uh, four years ago, actually six years ago now. And uh, their physical, they, they they replaced, I think it was like the 500 and 1,000 rupee note with like a new 500 and a new 2,000 note. And their cash, physical cash stock is like three times higher from when they discontinued those notes. And they said, they even said we want greater digitization. That's why we want to redo these serial numbers and redo these certain notes and everything. So you see a lot of buzzwords and a lot of uh, reports in the news. But if you look at it, like physical cash, which is a direct competitor <laughs> to CBDCs, is growing like crazy. 
Uh, it's like nine trillion dollars worth of physical cash in the world, and the only other competition would be bank deposits. You know, they're not, they're not going to be happy if uh, if all of those deposits just go out of their coffers and uh, go into you know some as you were talking about Arthur, some managed ledger by the central bank where. Yeah, you might be able to skim some fees to sort of manage the interface with it, but uh, if it's a CBDC, that means the bank, the bank can't lend that money. Uh, and if it could lend that money, then it's not a CBDC; it's just a regular bank deposit. So, I think it's a lot of a lot of smoke and mirrors. I think it's a lot of uh, high talk from central banks. But you know, Bank of Japan told us <laughs> two months ago that they see f- few clear use cases for CBDCs. So, anyway, I said I wouldn't go on that, but I don't know if you guys have any thoughts to that, or if you want to say anything else. So I was just wondering if physical circulating cash is going up, is that distributed across all types of economies or is it more because there's an increase in emerging economies? All economies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everyone. The only two Western economies that have gone down famously in the last 10 years are Norway and Sweden. And even there, they're turning around right now. They're printing more. (laughs) So they're famously trying to be a cashless society. And in the last I don't know, but even before COVID, they were turning it around and, and printing more. So, so that's what I'm saying. The only, the only, like maybe a few developing nations, maybe those two countries are really going to try to do it. And then, uh, and then China, just because they don't care about profitability and they're communists and everything else. So we'll see. But uh, I've been pretty hardcore on this for a long time. I, I do think that uh, stable coins are, are great as far as like a, you know, a fiduciary media, euro dollar type thing where basically banks can intermediate outside of a clunky, sorry, financial companies. They don't even necessarily have to be a bank, but you know, and, and they're, they're intermediating now throughout this the uh, economy, much like the Euro dollar does outside of, outside of the Federal Reserve System. And you know, there's a demand for it. Certainly it seems like it's gonna be dollars uh, to the future. You know, it's basically just, Michael Saylor talks about this, right? So you have a dollar as the transactional currency and you have Bitcoin as more of the asset to save. So I, th- I think there's a lot of overlap there. I think that makes sense. Having studied these central banks as much as I have with some of the research we do, I just, I really do doubt that they'll, they'll be able to pull it off. But uh, No, it's really, uh, really cool, um, really cool information. I wasn't, in, you know, I haven't spent any time on that. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, some opium. <laughs> but I have kind of a question for you guys coming out of Matthew's comments. So, um, and Matthew and I have talked about this before, but, the, uh, and this is also seems to be the ethos of foot finance. So uh, I'm in the camp that pretty much anything that drives adoption and people, you know, coming in and joining uh, the digital currency economy it is good right now because we just need more people in. And so people can come in and, and speculate on some shit coin. They can come in and buy Bitcoin, they can come in because they're excited about the Ethereum merge, it doesn't really matter. And what happens is some of them will come in and they'll look around and they'll learn and, uh, and they might stay and contribute. And so like, I don't think we should ascribe a value judgment to, well, oh, he came in because he's interested in Bitcoin, so he's good. And she came in because she's interested in Solana, so she's bad. Um, but I do think that the, the stable coins are a little bit of like a, uh, they're, they're another way to get people in because it takes that volatility uh, argument off the table. And so if you said you were interested in Bitcoin, but, you know, the volatility makes you scary, well, you know, come in and test out a, a stable coin, uh, maybe earn some yield on that, see how you feel about it, and, and maybe then you move around laterally and learn something about other currencies. Um, and it seems like with Clip, right, you're trying to make it easy, 
deep to onboard users. We're trying to make it easy to understand yield. Uh, and I'd be curious what you think. Like, is, is everything that drives adoption good, or is there is there a form of bad adoption? I think everything is good, and they're different. They're different types of people. Like some people come to to buy Dogecoin or some some tokens for one cent, hoping they go to one dollar. That's literally I heard the conversations over. So now the question is whether they will get this bad experience and start hating crypto after that, or it's like a you know gateway drug to to actual Bitcoin and how money works and you know how all this thing works in the world. So. Uh, I think it's a positive thing. So, yeah, in in short, it's it, it's positive, but the, there are the downsides. People would be losing money, right? They they would be losing money on on price decreases, on rock pulls, on uh, hacks, all that stuff. Yeah, but I also think that you know the same person who's looking to get rich quick it would find like there's opportunities to lose your money outside of crypto too. And so, if you were looking to throw your money into something that you thought was gonna Pacing your retirement. Uh, it's not crypto's fault that you chose that as the venue. I guess that's the point that I uh, spoke about at the beginning. Like it's, uh, I think it's better if it's permissionless and people can, you know, people at the end of the day, you can't protect everyone uh, anyway. So people just have to be able to make their own decisions and uh, learn through those decisions. So um, that's uh, that's what it is. And uh, I, I guess for kind of everybody, it's. Uh, the accessibility of, of crypto is one of the uh, you know one one of the things that that I, I really like about it because we know that there are you know plenty of places where you're not part of the you know global financial system and um, it's it's really hard to live like that so um, yeah I, I think I think any any adoption is is good adoption. I wanted to ask another question about uh, but. Uh, so two parts. One, uh, are you guys self-funded and, and or is there any relationship um, in the background between Clip and Paxful? Are they, um, is there a financial relationship there? There is no relationship because uh, one is uh, Web 2, one other is Web 3. And uh, yeah, we are self-funded. So, and of course, we're going to be raising around soon. Um, first, we have the product out. Our smart contracts are audited. Now we are doing a first revision, and then we're gonna be, um, you know, doing a fundraise because uh, investors are, are telling us you 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 either sh if you don't have a product, show us a community of you know thousands of followers, which we don't have. Uh, we chose a path to first actually do do the product, show it, it it works, different chains, it's easy to use, and yeah. So it's gonna be out super, super soon. So are you going to do kind of more of a publicity push to, to drive, drive some awareness? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The way we're going to raise exactly, we can go pretty like standard way, how the projects are raising in DeFi, you know, they have the private round, they have a IDO, this kind of things. We'll see. There's no like hundred percent plan written in stone, but this is something we will need to do again. Yeah. As you said, for network effects, that's like the key thing. What's the fundraising environment like in DeFi right now? I, I see announcements of large rounds still. So it seems like there's liquidity. There is money uh, in, in this market. Um, of course, after everything collapsed uh, in June, uh, July as well, investor, investors were super careful, uh, but everything picks up again. 
So, but I do think that you know the whole macro environment and everything affects you know what's uh, what's happening in those VC uh, um, markets as well. But uh, there is money. You just have to like you have to have something to show, right? And uh, that's why we decided to build the product, go to the get to the market, have some traction, and and then. Uh, you know, investors can see, can touch, can play with uh, what we built, and uh, if they like it, then uh, hopefully, hopefully they they think they they would like to work with us. That's good to hear. And so, um, I would argue a year ago, right? Like you really didn't have to have much to go around, and there would be people would be competing to give you money, you know, based on an idea. Uh, has that uh, changed? Is there more due diligence going on? Like. What, are you having to seek out opportunities to um, meet with investors or, or are they still finding you? Like, what's your yeah. take on it? We haven't, we haven't really, uh, like I like said, we, we haven't really gone into the fundraising process, uh, you know, in, in a way that that's, that's our focus uh, because we've been fo- focused on the product, but uh, definitely it has changed. Uh, and uh, there is more due diligence. There is more skepticism, which is probably justified, considering you know how you know m- m- most protocols probably aren't investment worth anyway. Um, and um, but and, and we have to go to the investors and talk to them. Um, but it also depends. Like if 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 we go to the market, then we get traction, and, and you know the the word spreads. That, okay, that's a really good thing. Then the investors will come as well. Everything depends what you have. Is it uh, attractive or not? So um, if we if we don't if we don't manage to you know get users get traction, the product sucks, the, the experience sucks, then uh, it's obviously it's, it's going to be a lot harder to raise money. Uh, so everything I think comes down to to what you actually have. Is it a good thing and, and can we execute? That's I think that's the core and that should be the core of, of any any investment, I guess. We can get a little bit more in the weeds. I, I love the more philosophical and uh, broad conversations about the market as well. But regarding, you know, if I'm a user, I want to get on and trade on your platform or try to earn yield. What sort of risks would I be taking? I presume I just deposit my my crypto into your platform and then from there everything is managed from your side. It's non-custodial, right? You can withdraw your funds anytime. We, uh, um, they're still your funds, right? So uh, you have control whether you, you you want to deposit or if you are if you deposit, then yes, because you deposit into smart contract and they're routed to different protocols uh, to earn yield. But uh, if you want to withdraw, then that's totally up to you. We, we cannot kind of stop stop you from from doing that right so um so that that's one thing but the risks are uh, well there are there are those risks that are that are you know known to everybody it's uh there can be a you know hacking event which is probably the biggest one that someone hacks and you know protocols that where we are where we are farming for example and, uh, and then some funds are lost, and uh, and these these are the things that can happen. How we how we try to tackle those issues is um, you know not allocate um, you know to do diversify where we allocate money, so we won't allocate you know one hundred percent or even fifty percent of the funds to one particular uh, underlying protocol. So uh, we, we we want to minimize the exposure to to each specific strategy that we deploy. 
Um, and, um, and, and I, I guess that that's kind of the core risk. And of course, we also, uh, we're in talks with different DeFi insurance providers. So we want to cover for the protocol, um, which, which will happen. We also have an insurance fund where we will be, um, you know, part of the revenue will be going there. So if anything happened, then we also have our own insurance fund that we can use to, uh, cover the losses. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I like the big, like the key thing, I guess, is with the uh, risk scoring that we have, that we do proper analysis and we don't AP to protocols that, you know, haven't gone through uh, stress testing in the market. And, and, uh, and that's, that's what, uh, what, what we're focused on. By the way, Arthur was cut off. He said that something happened with the, with the internet. Mm. That's how we, we want to approach it. We, uh, we want to uh, limit our exposure to, to, to risk of any particular farm, any particular uh, pool. Um, and uh, and we, uh, we, we don't use algorithmic stable coins. Um, and we stay away from, you know, I don't know, crazy leverage and things like that. So uh, we really, really try to focus on, uh, you know, um, making sure that users funds are safe and of course we you know we, we analyze the code of each uh protocol the developers go through that because everything is open source uh you know the codes have to be audited there has to be bug bounty uh, our code is audited there's a bug bounty so if, if all those things exist then you know we we pretty much do what we can to mitigate the risks and uh, and yeah that's uh that's what it is kudos for all the rigor that you're putting into it because well, we all know that not every project does that. So we're definitely rooting for you. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have to run. Um, apologies for maybe missing a little bit of the end of the conversation, but uh, Mako is a pleasure, Artur as well. Uh, and definitely hoping you guys are very successful and, and wish you a lot of luck with the fundraising too. Yeah, great to meet you as well. Thank you. Thanks, Alec. So, Mick, you want to keep going? Uh, I, I can go for a little bit longer, no problem. I did want to ask you one question, to be honest. Sure. When do you think people in Europe, or how far inflation has to go for people in Europe, like in Estonia, last month it was 25%, right? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you think people will, uh, or have you seen maybe demand increased for Bitcoin, or when do you think people will turn to Bitcoin and want to buy that? What needs to happen for for uh, for for people to go to Bitcoin, uh, because I, I haven't at least noticed myself, and to be honest, I haven't looked very hard uh, whether there has been increased interest or, or you know purchases or whatever from retail retail crowd in Europe. Oh man, it's a million dollar question or you know hundred million sat question. <laughs> I think at this point, there's so much going on geopolitically that's really tough in Europe, uh, much more than, of course, inflation, price inflation is a big part of that. But uh, most people aren't, unfortunately, thinking about Bitcoin, you know, at all. They're thinking about, um, you know, energy prices and putting food on the table and all the rest. And though we all, I think, know and believe that Bitcoin will be a massive hedge against these kind of types of problems, in the future, it's really hard to know when uh, when that will happen. You know, I've, I run a lot of the numbers on the on the regressions and price trends and trying to see you know where we where we could be and where we should be. And like, if you just follow just straight up the general trend of Bitcoin, you know, of all time, 
looking at literally every day's price and looking at um, nothing but price. You're not talking about some crazy stock to flow ratio or anything, just looking at price. You know, the trend should be somewhere around $45,000. That's the, that's where the trend is based on like all time price action and where it goes. Uh, it, it has fallen over the years. You know, if you look at higher trends, if you like, you know, started to draw a trend line at the end of say 2017, or if you drew it even at the end of 2021, uh, that trend was uh, was a little bit higher than it is now, and, and obviously it's you know we're we're around twenty twenty thousand at the moment. It's like commodities, right? Price goes up, price goes down. I'm more interested in the long term game like that. You know, I think that's a lot of uh, that's what a lot of uh, Bitcoiners uh, recognize, as as I know you do as well. It's really hard to foresee uh, what it could be the trigger that would get people to rush into Bitcoin and hyper Bitcoinization, as Artur was talking about. There's just massive geopolitical problems, as we know here in Eastern in Eastern Europe. People are really, really afraid of uh, everything that Russia is doing, and uh, you know, in Europe, in Western Europe, we weren't vigilant. They weren't vigilant, I think, on uh, really looking for energy security and energy, uh, at least independence, probably isn't the right word, but as much energy security as you could find. Uh, they weren't they weren't looking at they weren't you know heeding our warnings in Eastern Europe about the dangers of Russia. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things coming together there. If I didn't know anything about the price history and I just looked at the way that the world is going right now, it, it seems like, yeah, why the heck wouldn't Bitcoin be <laughs> double or triple or more than that, quadruple more than that as a, as a wealth savings uh, store value? But, you know, markets, as I think it was Keynes that said, you know, markets can be <laughs> much more rational than, uh, you know, much longer than you have any capital to spare. No, I don't, I don't know either. I, I, I just thought about it, like, uh, when will it happen? Will it happen at all? Um, what will people do? Because I've read a bit about, you know, the Weimar Republic and, uh, and, and you know, what happens when, when hyperinflation kicks in and then, you know, like how bad it can get. Um, I, I, I even, you know, I, I don't even... I don't even think that Euro will survive, right? Yeah. So, um, but uh, what will be the aftermath, you know, and, and things like that? It's, uh, let's say the, the future seems pretty bleak in this region for, you know, I don't know, for next, let's say three, four or five years, maybe. Uh, I don't know how fast these things happen, but I, I, but I have thought about, uh, but I have thought about that, you know, when will people like, you know, want to change their savings, everything to, to Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, because the physical gold, physical silver, these things are all like emptied out, right? <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to get, like, it, it, maybe it's not hard, but you have to pay like serious premium if you want to buy physical gold or silver now in Estonia, for example. So Yeah, you do indeed. You do indeed. I think, you know, even in the US, which is always like kind of the best... Uh, spot market like you're still you could still be looking at anywhere from three to seven percent over the spot price and i think in estonia it's probably much much more yeah and i and i I think it also the thing that you said before most people they considering the energy prices you know the uncertainty around that and the very cold winter is coming so people don't even have you know money to exchange to anything they're just living from paycheck to paycheck and you know trying to survive and um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a tough, it's going to be a tough winter. Um, and, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty, let's say skeptical or not skeptical, pessimistic, sorry. Um, uh, 
about about the next winter. But of course, I hope for the best, and um, and and I hope that you know we will have some sort of resolution. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of positivity coming out of uh, the resolve here in Europe for for the people of Ukraine and you know them fighting for their freedom. And I was saying this on uh, my friend uh, Marty Bent's show uh, just yesterday. Actually, we were recording. There's a lot of vectors always, right? Like positive, negative. Uh, you have things in the negative column, things in the positive column. And I also talked about this with my talk in Riga. It's like, you know, if you were a gold bug in the 1970s, as price was rising to $850 an ounce, you would have thought that like you were, you had totally won and sound money had won and freedom had won. And we were just going to be on the road to true, uh, you know, peace and freedom and prosperity. And obviously that, that didn't work. And though I certainly would like the government to get out of the way as much as possible when it comes to to money. We have other things where unless we get private defense agencies everywhere, I mean, we just need the government to help protect us and uh, with national defense around Europe. And that's something that obviously Americans shun much more than Europeans. I mean, Europeans, like we just, I was talking with the uh, president of the Polish Mises Institute, you know, I mean, we, just, we have international law here and we need to respect it and these types of things are are obviously like much more important even uh, than I don't want to say than than money or than Bitcoin because I think that Bitcoin can help in the long term from those things. But I mean, yeah, it's just so many so many geopolitical issues that are on the table for for everyone these days. So um, could be interesting if we can get good adoption outside of the financial system, outside of the traditionally regulated system. And that was actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, uh, Mick, because I do think that, you know, I'm definitely not one of these people who, uh, like there's some Bitcoiners, for example, in the US who, who they, they just love touting how like, you know, Ethereum would be a security or whatnot and it should be regulated by the SEC and stuff. And I have no desire to even get into that debate. And if we're talking about, you know, next level financial things and personal sovereignty and control of your money, like, it's much better to have a protocol governing these things than to have you know, the SEC. And uh, I have no doubt that Bitcoin will succeed. And if there is some competition from Ethereum, you know, let it be. But I have no doubt that Bitcoin will succeed on its own. And it doesn't need the SEC to like shut down, you know, Ethereum projects or soul projects or whatever. Like I said, I'm, I'm definitely caveat emptor with this, all this stuff. And I think, uh, it's great to see projects like yours, uh, starting up and offering something different. So that was my, long-winded way, I guess, of asking a question. You've dealt with this a lot in Estonia with the uh, the crypto regulators there have been kind of famous coming early to the scene. How are you feeling about the regulatory environment these days surrounding a product like yours? It's a good question. The way we have thought uh, or the way we uh, kind of uh, position ourselves um, is... Uh, we we are we, well the legal all the, all the legal stuff and re- regulatory stuff for us will be in Caribbean, right? Mm. Including um, you know the financial licenses that uh, that we need to get, um, just because of the uh, the barriers that we have here. It, and what I mean is, it would be literally impossible for us to get any sort of license in Europe. Because if you are, you know, if, uh, well, there, there, will, there would be a very long procedural kind of um, process of 
what it really is, you know, like we are depositing into smart contracts, like, okay, who is controlling them? Where's the team located? Because we are all around, right? And, uh, um, and, and, uh, and, and then you have the question of KYC, which, you know, almost none of the DeFi protocols are doing. Uh, now, one big, mm-hmm. one big um, uh, decentralized exchange, DYDX, they implemented their KYC with, and, and asked by biometric data, which of course got a lot, got got a big big backlash. So uh, yeah, I, what what I think is that it's impossible to get any license for these types of products at this moment in this current regulatory environment. Um, and uh, and we won't be, for example, we won't be serving America American uh, citizens at all. So uh, we will be chill clocking the U.S. because we don't want to get in trouble with the U.S. regulators. Um, and we have to, uh, you know, we have to be careful of who we actually onboard. And at the same time, we are looking into different, you know, jurisdictions and and trying to understand what we can do and where. And we're also in discussion of uh, with, with some other protocols, and one of them has one of them one of them does have um, different financial licenses in the U.S. So it might be that you know they they act as a proxy. They they do uh, you know they do what they have to do, and and uh, and we operate on the back end, just you know just the code. So uh, uh, we're looking into different stuff like that. I'm not very well, you know, I'm I'm a bit out of touch uh, with what what's happening. With the regulations in Estonia specifically or Europe around crypto, except for that it's not, you know, it's never, it's never, or not never, but it's not positive. It's, um, they, of course, they want to clamp it down and they, what they want to do with regulation, of course, is to control, right? Uh, they want yeah. to control what's happening. And, um, and because, you know, I've been, I've been working on the product, so I haven't really paid attention to and I, I worked in that space for eight years. Um, yeah. I got so sick of that. So sick of talking to bureaucrats, officials. Uh, <laughs> there were there were so many obstructions of procedural law and uh, so like a lot of bad will. And at the beginning, it wasn't like that, but uh, you know, it got really bad at some point. And and uh, so I just you know wanted to get get away from that. And uh, and I have been talking to you know regulators and law firms in uh, in Caribbean and in different jurisdictions there just to see you know what what we can do and where and. Um, and uh, we, like you know, what we have been waiting for is, uh, and uh, and what what will happen? I think is uh, there will be you know uh, those zero zero knowledge proof um, IDs that you have. You you will will do your KYC and and then you have have something in your wallet and you don't really have to give your KYC separately for different protocols. But uh, you know the protocol can just identify that your KYC is done without receiving the data and, and you know, I, I think there will be something like that and then, you know, it, it, it will be a future where you have permissioned and permissionless DeFi, you know, that's what I think. Um, and, you know, the permissionless one is uh, the one that's kind of the Wild West, you know, where, you know, there is um, anonymous teams doing, doing stuff and they're already doing stuff. And then there will be the ones that, you know, want to get that uh, mainstream adoption and work with, you know, financial institutions and, uh, and regulators and, uh, you know, and these, these institutions, they, uh, these protocols, they have to, uh, you know, comply and, and that's what it will be. 
Um, so, so we'll see. Um, I'm never like I, I haven't been positive about any regulatory, you know, things for a very long time. So it's uh, mm. uh, yeah, that's that's that is uh, how we see things at the moment. But we are we are working, you know, in uh, we're setting up our uh, legal uh, entity, legal uh, structure in in uh, Caribbean. They know that they have a lot of power. Uh, and they certainly want to control it and regulate it. So I totally understand your point. I mean, if you try to discuss this at any level of government, even in a small country like Estonia, I can imagine it's absolute pain. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, it's. Uh, I guess you know. I don't. I didn't dive into it, but uh, there was some paper issued by the U.S. Some, you know, department was it this week or last week where what the what they essentially said. As far as I, you know, I read a couple of line, lines on Twitter. I didn't actually read the paper, but uh, so so they can essentially decide and assess whether some, you know, proof of work uh, blockchain is, you know, too uh, or consumes too much energy, and and they can they can decide, you know, like to what extent they, they can limit it. It's something like that, but the mentioned was super vague and, and gave like super, not super vague and gave a lot of room to decide what is okay and what is not. And and these types of, uh, you know, papers that are intentionally vague that leave that like a lot of room for interpre- interpretation and a lot of room for uh, officials to decide what they want to decide. The, like the, the, these are the things that I talked about. You you just get you know it's uh, it's not the right way to do things, right? Because mm-hmm. you know there's there's always some you know some reason behind doing things like that. Probably as uh, as you guys have been talking about, the smaller countries are the place to go as far as you know. They can offer something different. They can offer better regulations, and certainly regulatory uh, uh, competition is a very very good thing. <laughs> Yes, it is. And uh, one, one, one kind of other related but uh, important part of all of this, and including regulation, right, is the uh, PR, right, and, and the messaging that goes, goes on and uh, what kind of public image is created through those, um, you know, articles and uh, media and things like that. Because what, what usually happens, at least in my estimation, is that you will have some... Uh, negative press about, you know, let's say Bitcoin in this case. Uh, and, and then after that, you know, then the regulators come out and say, okay, we, we need to do something. And, and you know, the, the, it's kind of how the public perception is formed. And um, I, I think that's another important part of all, all of this, you know, the regulation and what kind of regulation there will be. And, uh, and also how, you know, DeFi is seen by, by the public and how Bitcoin is seen by the public. And, and, and that's kind of the... Uh, let's say another wing in the war that, that we have to fight. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, listen, man, I know we could go on all day on those topics. Uh, you know, I appreciate your time here coming on. Any, anything else you want to you wanna add? Uh, uh, unfortunately, we see that Artur, he's been traveling and uh, I think his internet went out on us. As we finish up here, anything else you want to add on Clip Finance or, uh, or anything uh, for our listeners? People can go to clip.finance. That's the website, and from the footer they can find our um, documentation as well, well, where they can look into, um, you know, how uh, how the pro- protocol is built, the architecture, what we do, and and also how we do risk analysis, risk scoring, 
Uh, we also have links to our community on Discord. Um, yeah, we, we rarely use Telegram. It, it, it is there, but actually we, uh, we, want to, we want people to come to Discord, follow us on Twitter, and um, yeah, if anyone you know, is interested, wants to ask questions, super happy to, uh, to discuss. You know, thank you for taking us. It was a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, hopefully, we can uh, we can see each other in real life soon. Uh, actually, Arthur was in Honey Badger as well. So, if I would have known that you were there, then you, you, you two could have met up, right? Yeah, that would have been great. I didn't know he was he was there, but uh, definitely next time we're uh, we're still close here in the Baltics. Well, listen, Nick, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thank you for having us. Take care.